Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. As I mentioned, we're going to be looking at this proverb from the book of James regarding the tongue. And as a pastor, I'm here to give you tools and not rules. And the tools I hope to give you today are the powers of speech and attention. So, what is it exactly that happens when a speaker speaks? Is it merely the expanding and collapsing of sonic waves, creating fluctuations of air pressure that alert our brains to activity by the tickling of tiny hairs? And while this describes the method of transmission, it is not speech. Speech is the phenomenon of thoughts transferred. Speech is the way that mind connects one to another. And by adopting the practice that I'll share with you today, you will be able to use this phenomenal power not only to share ideas among friends, as it normally is, but to affect real change in the world. This is no small feat, however, and James urges us to keep a tight rein on our tongues as the mastery of the tongue is near mastery of the spirit. You can observe in verse 2, it says, Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. But how shall we become faultless, James? Even you mentioned in just the verse prior, we all stumble in many ways. It's true, we all stumble, and in oh so many ways. And so it appears then that mastery of the tongue is simultaneously impossible and imperative. And why is it imperative? Well, we need only to look at James's description. If you look at verse 6, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the course of one's whole life on fire and is itself ablaze with hellfire. And that's quite the prognosis, wouldn't you say? Now, these are the scrawlings of a person on a search for stronger language. And what he's saying here is that the tongue is unmatched in the world for its destructive potential. So what are we to do? Do we just give up and say, well, I guess it's a lost cause. The whole dang thing's covered in hellfire. Are we to say nothing? No, because when lacking control of something so powerful as to corrupt the whole body and set the whole course of your life on fire, well, we get it under control. Right? And how do we get it under control? Well, a solution for such a challenge comes from the Apostle Paul when he says, Let those who steal now use their hands for work. Likewise, Lord, we pray, let our tongue of destruction have its hellfire quenched and power repurposed for good. And it is so. So how might we quench this hellfire and use our tongues for good? Well, like the thief who needs to put his hands to work, We must put the phenomenon of speech to good use. We must speak only that which is good for building up, and we must not let corrupting speech come out of our mouths. As James says in verses 9 and 10, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. And I'm not talking about swear words here, though frequent use of such language may reveal something underlaid. Rather, I'm referring to the negative self-talk and negative worldview that's so common among us. It's important to control these negative thoughts and ideas and transmute them into positive ones. And how do we transmute these negative thoughts and ideas into positive ones? Well, I'll tell you. 
Our words have power in them. A friend once told me, words are spells. That's why they call it spelling. Our tongue, with its raw potential, becomes a powerful spiritual tool when mastered and implemented for the purposes of good. How then do we spread goodness with our words? Consider this. Our words shape our world. And I offer you four examples of phrases that do just that. Number one, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. We've all heard this before, conveying a negative outlook on the future based on current observations. Or take number two, for example, this polarizing statement, make America great again. How much has this narrative dominated our spiritual community in the recent years? Or how about this one, number three, black lives matter. This phrase gave voice to multitudes and still occupies our collective consciousness as a prevalent theme. And for a subtler example, consider number four. And then COVID hit. I had never considered how important toilet paper was to me until COVID hit. This phrase represents a common psychological landmark in the past, locating the moment where we all agree that the rules of the game had changed. Phrases like these carry power, and the effect on our consciousness is observable. Phrases like these sit in our minds and guide the flow of thoughts into categories. Now, as an aside, I will tell you that this is why bipartisanism is such a powerful method of control. Because if you feed the masses enough categorizing ideology, you can not only guide the flow of thoughts into categories, but you can guide whole persons into categories, whole cultures even. Therefore, it's imperative that we learn to master the tongue in a way that organizes our whole selves and to be more in alignment with the spirit of Christ than we are in alignment with the spirit of the old age or with the powers that were, as I like to call them, because I think it's a more appropriate terminology given the victory of Christ over sin, Satan, and death. So, to align ourselves with Christ through speech is to adopt a frame of mind whereby the things that we just say are the very same things that would have issued from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus' basic outlook, of course, as we know, was to love God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. With this as our basis, we continue on the Christian path and seek to fulfill the mind of Christ in us by absorbing every imaginable trait of Jesus' personality that is compatible with our own right now. And so the earnest seeker inquires, what is true of Jesus' personality that in this exact moment is also near enough to my own personality that to adopt such a trait would only be a mild alteration of my natural state of being, imperceptible even. We must focus on these things when seeking spiritual mastery of any kind, for if we reflect on Christ's full and magnificent personality, we struggle to believe that we could ever attain such perfection. And to bypass this spiritual paralysis, we need only to heed the advice of the man who eats the elephant, because everyone knows that there's only one way to eat an elephant, and that's one bite at a time. It's doable. But we must give ourselves the allowances that our souls require in order to chew and swallow. When we give up the desire to strive for and attain that perfection, saying, oh, well, I could never do it. I'm just a lowly sinner. Thank God for Jesus. And I mean, really, truly, thank God for Jesus. Amen. But when we lean on this type of thinking and we cease to seek perfecting ourselves, we're forfeiting the great spiritual race that we've all signed up for. 
Because from before the foundation of the world, you were called to run this race, to strive for perfection, which is the full manifestation of your highest self here in this present moment, transforming the world by being yourself transformed. And forfeiting this great spiritual marathon just after the starting shot rings out deprives oneself of the thrill of the race. And so I urge you, don't give up on yourself. You are getting better and better. You are learning more and more. And that is all we are ever expected to do is to learn and to adapt. And so to do this, we learn to adopt the way of Jesus. Little by little, with faith in God's guidance and with faith in ourselves, we can do it. And so I encourage you, as we consider how to achieve mastery of the tongue, we must imagine how Jesus spoke. And so the question becomes, how did Jesus speak? Well, he was a master teacher and storyteller who spoke truth to power, proclaimed liberty to the captives, and always carried with him a gentle word for the downtrodden and disheartened. That much is true. And by these virtues, Jesus of Nazareth has managed to captivate our attention and affection for millennia, which is impressive. And these virtues, like a divine lure, draw us near to Christ. Yet I draw your attention today to one key distinction of Jesus' speech. Recalling the words of Matthew the Apostle, he speaks as one with authority. And so what does it mean to speak with authority? Well, it means to have such certainty of what you want, who you are, and what is happening that you need no outside corroboration to prove to yourself that what you say is true. Ideas like these are simple and plain, plain and simple. Ideas this perfect are attainable to the simplest mind, yet tickle the highest of intellects. This is why Jesus often spoke in parables that were cast with farmers and fishermen, attainable and transformative to all. When a clear word is spoken with true intent and absolute articulation, things start to shift in our outer world. And this effect mustn't be taken for granted or abused for selfish ambition or revenge or petulance or deception. No, my friends, we have a responsibility as spiritual beings having this human experience to use our words for good, to pronounce the good verdict on all that we see, which is holy, 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 good, beautiful, lovely. Everything is shimmering with glory here and now. And so to unlock this potential for good within us, we must learn to control the tongue. So how then do we control our tongue and what shall we say? Well, firstly, to control the tongue, one must learn silence. We must learn to simply receive with no intention of reiteration. We must learn to listen with full reception and without reflection. Now, I tend to have a problem with this because I don't know if you can tell, but I like to talk a lot. But what can I say? I'm a preacher for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake, I am a preacher. <laughs> to learn to be silent, we must immerse ourselves in silence by contemplation. Because we live in a world of noise. And whether you acknowledge it or not, your attention is for sale. And the primary marketing tactic is noise. This noise overloads the senses with images and messages of want and need, along with empty promises of hopes fulfilled by whatever wares are currently being advertised. And not only this, but the powers that were desire your attention to make their case to you and hopefully win you to their side. Because the most valuable thing in the world is your attention. 
That's how these big data companies have become the modern megaliths that now overshadow our society. They get rich off of our attention, and we give it freely. Why? Because we like the noise. We are addicted to it. We want to be entertained. We want to be distracted. And I understand why this life is painful. We want to laugh, and we should laugh, but we often inadvertently replace lasting joy and satisfaction with a cheap fabrication. So rather than to stay locked in the cycle of consumption, I urge you, learn to stop. Collaborate and listen to the Spirit of God speaking inside of you. So in order to master the tongue, we must first learn silence. Then we must learn how to give voice to this voice with our voice. We must learn to speak as one with authority. That is to speak with such certainty of what you want, who you are, and what is happening that you need no outside corroboration to prove to yourself that what you say is true. Now, this is difficult to do all the time, so I find it best to memorize phrases that work in this regard. These phrases I know by heart, and I recite them aloud in various circumstances, and by merely adding these mantras to your lexicon of reflexive thought, your world will begin to change, and I'll share them with you now. Number one. I love you. Learn to say, I love you. We must learn to say, I love you with our whole heart. And the best way to learn this is to practice on ourselves. Because as the saying goes, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Likewise, our I love you can only ever be as pure as it is when we say it to ourselves in the mirror. And so I encourage you every morning, Say, I love you to yourself. Say, I love you, Ron, 10 times in the mirror every morning. Say it. Do it. Really do it. It'll change your life. And by doing this, we transmute shame into comfort. Learn to say, I love you. Number two, save your sorries. We go through life carrying guilt for simply existing. Saying sorry when we so much as bump into someone in the hall or return a text with a delayed response. Don't do it. You haven't done anything wrong. Save your sorries for when you do, because you will. If you save your sorries, they actually mean something when you offer them. So instead of saying sorry, say thank you. Instead of sorry I'm late, say thank you for your patience. Instead of sorry for not getting back to you, say thank you for being there for me. By changing this language, we transmute those feelings of ambient guilt into gratitude. Save your sorries. Number three, I'm ready now. By announcing I'm ready now, we alert the universe that we are prepared to receive every good thing that it has in store for us, while also reminding ourselves that though we may face hardship, we're ready for it. Why? Because our whole life has been training for this moment, thus transmuting your fear of the unknown into a hopeful anticipation of the future. I'm ready now. Number four, lessons, blessings, and teachings. By this, we remember that everything is happening for us and not to us. It is the nature of life to suffer, and it's the nature of suffering to refine one's character. And so by this simple mantra, we transmute our villains into teachers and our calamity into opportunity. Lessons, blessings, and teachings. Number five, you have to feel it to heal it. We keep so much bottled up for so many reasons. 
We hide our depression, our irritability, and our other negative emotions from one another, but most of all, we hide it from ourselves because we can't bear the pain of it. And it's tempting to choose to numb and to ignore rather than to heal. But doing so only drives the splinter deeper. Instead, we must tell ourselves in the midst of our brokenness that this is all part of the evolutionary process, and it is a process that each individual must undertake on their own. For while I can feel with you, no one can feel for you, and your feelings demand to be felt. By accepting this reality, we can transmute our traumas into context, into history. You have to feel it to heal it. And lastly, number six, mm, good. Mm, good. With this guttural response, we make the declaration and pronounce the great verdict that still echoes from the opening paragraphs of Genesis that what God has made is good. So anytime that you approve of something, stick to this phrase. Choose it over other fitting colloquialisms, for in its simplicity and directness lies its power. There is no resistance to such a phrase, and when said correctly, creation itself seems to blush, transmuting earth into heaven. And this is our highest calling, my friends, to bring heaven to earth. And such a goal seems lofty and even a bit narcissistic until you realize how close the goal already is. Think of the marathon runner who nears the finish line and, while exhausted, finds reserves of energy within himself that he didn't know he had. Or consider the mother, who after ten long months of siphoning her own energy into growing another human body and enduring agonizing shifts in anatomy, discovers a secret source of strength when it comes time to push. It's like that finish line is so close you can almost taste it. And it's the anticipation that the next push could finally give you that baby. The earth is giving birth to heaven. It's a natural process, but it requires delicate caretakers. We are to be midwives to her delivery and keepers of her gardens. We merely assist her delivery and growth. And Jesus invites us into this work. Remember his words, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So my friends, this work is not hard, but it requires a life of simplicity and commitment to the way. But we can do this work. We must believe that. We must believe that it can be done. Or we must admit that our prayers are in vain. Recall, if you will, the chief request of the Lord's Prayer, to let your will be done and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, do you mean it? Do you truly hope for such a miraculous transmutation? Do we even have a mustard seed of faith that it could be possible? Well, if so, then I tell you that it is. And to bring about its fruition requires nothing more than some simple practices and principles. But we must trust and do not doubt. You might say, Wow, that sounds like a lot of pressure. I'm not sure I can do that. And I say, neither did I. But with simplicity comes time and space. And when we reduce our activity, we have time to sit. When we reduce distractions, suddenly the mind is free to entertain itself with thoughts of divinity. But when we're caught in this cycle of hurry, always gorging ourselves on fast food and Facebook, we can't expect much more than dis-ease. So if you want to experience the kingdom of heaven on earth, you have to seek first the kingdom, and all of these things will be added unto you. So how then do we seek it? 
while a life of simplicity, prayer, and practices to shape our consciousness, like how we control our tongue. So remember, words are spells. That's why they call it spelling. Tame your tongue through patience and positivity, and let no corrupting speech come out of your mouth. Speak only that which is good for building up. Say to yourself, I love you. Remember to save your sorries. Let the universe know I'm ready now to receive all good things that you have to give. Remember that life is lessons, blessings, and teachings happening for you, not to you. Remember that you have to feel it to heal it. And most of all, adopt the simple phrase, God's great verdict. Good. So, my siblings, I just encourage you to use your newfound magic for good and for the kingdom of heaven. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.